Okay, we weren't recording. I was asked to record this one, so. Um, and so, uh, and so what, a, what, what I want to do is to draw a distinction between um, the ways in which we respond from a, a political perspective, which is very, very, uh, which has degrees of, of nuances, and the way in which we respond as people of faith, right? So uh, recently I was talking to a very dear friend of mine uh, that I was visiting down in Florida. We had, uh, I took about a week vacation down there, and we always just, we grew up together and we always just love to talk and argue about things that are going on in the world. And finally, when, um, and he, he's Catholic as well, we were in youth group together, um, but he, we were talking about the things that were going on in Israel with Gaza and things like that. And finally, in the midst of this like two hour discussion where we were both really upset with each other, but still loved each other, um, <laughs> I said, wait a second. I said, we're talking about two different things. I said, I'm talking from the moral perspective and you're talking from the political perspective of American interests. I said, those are two different things. And he was like, you're right. There's two different arguments. We have to like be on the same common ground. So um, the reason that I want to jump into this is because uh, for those who have studied philosophy, especially modern philosophy, uh, Descartes, um, Rene Descartes, uh, is kind of the verge of modern philosophy, uh, switched a, um, a very important principle in, um, in uh, metaphysics and in anthropology in which we've always believed that action flows from being, right? That I am a human, therefore everything that I do is a human act, right? Therefore you have a dog, and therefore everything the dog does is an animal act, right? Same thing with, with, with plants, right? You have a tree, so everything that it does is a vegetative act, right? Growth and things like that. So that action flows from being, right? This happens a lot. Uh, this this comes up when I uh, when I talk to uh, when I talk to uh, men who are in formation for the permanent diaconate, and we, we meet with them at the uh, at the seminary. And there's a, a group of priests that we actually have to talk to. There we say, and one of the priests says, uh, you know, why would you like to why would you like to be a permanent deacon? They say, well, I just I really wanna I really wanna serve the church. And he looks down and he goes, well, you're an extraordinary minister, a lector, you're part of the Knights of Columbus, and you help with the weekly offertory count at your church. So you're already serving. Why do you want to be a deacon, <laughs> right? The idea that action flows from being. Descartes switched this up and he said, I think, therefore I am. So he took the action and he said, because I am self-aware that I'm a thinking being, I therefore exist, which, you know, is, 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 a, is an inversion of that, of that, uh, Thing. You ex so, so the being flows from the action. This is where we get into the modern devaluation of human life, where people just say, well, if somebody is in a vegetative state, there's no worth or there's no value to their life, right? Because there is no action on their part. However, there is being. We'll go get into this here, here in a little bit. However, the reason that I bring that up is because we see an evolution of that in postmodern, in our postmodern culture, which is no longer, I think, therefore I am, it's I'm angry, therefore I am. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're not fired up about something, if you're not, if you're not for a cause, right, then they're just like, you know, well, why aren't you fired up about this? And it's like, well, I don't need to get fired up about it, right? Because my fired up is not going to change what's going on, right? So we live in a world that, you know, is, is driven by anxiety. It's driven by division. It's also driven by anger, right? We are not called to live on that level. Right? Emotions, by their definition, are irrational. Emotions, by their definition, are irrational. 
Therefore, when we have those mo moments of, of, of an emotional movement within us, even if it's a violent sort of surge of emotion, we still, as thinking and believing Christians, have to take a step back and go, wait a second, right? Anger can be useful, right? It gives us energy. It makes us like want to either fight or fly or flee, right? But at the same time, I don't want to necessarily react from this place of anger, but respond from a place of justice and righteousness, right? Um, so when we look at, um, uh, when we look at, uh, modern events, we always have to keep, uh, our response to the world around us within the context of the church's social teaching. The church, the Catholic social teaching of the church is a cover all for what the church has, has, has proclaimed for, uh, 2000 years. It is a collection of seven principles that help guide um, what is right for mankind. So I'm just going to go through those principles really quick so we're all, uh, so we're all aware of them, right? The first principle is that uh, the human person, human life, has a dignity and a value that must be respected in all situations, right? So the dignity of the human person and the value of human life. John Paul II said to the United Nations in 1995 when he... Um, uh, when he addressed them, uh, addressed the United Nations, is that, of course, not only does uh, human life have dignity, but especially must protect the lives of those who cannot speak for themselves. He was especially speaking about the unborn when it comes to abortion, but also the poor and the needy who don't necessarily have an outlet to speak and to advocate for themselves. The second principle of Catholic moral theology is that um, the, the value and the dignity of the family and the community must be supported in all situations, right? And this includes, remember that when we talk about rights, we also have to talk about responsibility, right? Because if somebody claims a right, if it's a human right, it means that everyone owes them that, right? So a human right to life means that everyone owes them to respect, right, the autonomy of their life. The same thing is that the family has a right to exist. Right? And people can determine how to, uh, how to form a family and how to found a family. But also, we all are required, we have a responsibility to participate in family life and in community life. Right? This is so very important when we talk about uh, modern events. I'll get to the idea of detachment and, uh, and willingness to, to, to suffer here in a little bit. But consider that fact that how many people are fired up about what's going on a thousand miles away, but they couldn't care less about, or they couldn't care less about what's going on down the street with a, 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 a household that's, you know, that's financially in trouble, or you know, they can they can help with. So we were required to participate in our local community. Three years ago, and now I just keep my mouth shut because nobody cares. Um, but three years ago, I wrote a letter to the editor thinking that, that actually mattered in Kernersville, which it doesn't because I don't think many people read the Kernersville news. But I looked at the um, uh, but as soon as I got here, I changed my voter registration. I was always registered with my family because I figured I don't have a stable life because I'm always being moved around. But when I was made a pastor, I said, well, I'll probably be here a while, hopefully, you know, praise God. Um, and so I changed my voter's registration in Kernersville. And I actually went out and voted in the municipal elections. And I was like, I was ready. I was just like, man, I'm going to be in a line. I'm I walked in and they're like, yeah, you're like the eighth person that's come by today. And I looked at the numbers. Like nobody votes in the municipal elections. It's like maybe maybe 7%, I think, of all voters, actually. And I thought to myself, I wrote a letter to the editor, and I said, 
the municipal elections are actually the ones that matter the most. School board, right? Sheriff, mayor, alderman, things like that that actually change the direction of our local communities rather than everybody showing up because they want, you know, for the federal elections and you have to wait in a long line or vote early. And it's just like, at the end of the day, it's the municipal elections that matter the most, right? So that idea of participating in our local community is something that is absolutely required uh, by the church's social teaching. Uh, thirdly, um, well, we kind of already jumped into this, but the respect, uh, the, the, the universal respect for human rights. Uh, again, a, a, great, uh, a great thing to read on this is uh, John Paul II's address to the United Nations in 1995. It's a very short address, but of course we can never list an exhaustive, uh, uh, an exhaustive group of human rights right? um, because it would just go on, this is a human right, this is a human right. Now remember, human rights are distinct from civil rights. Civil rights many times enshrine human rights, right? If the government has done a, a good job of it. But uh, human rights are those things that everyone is entitled to. Civil rights are those things that the law entitles people to, right? So a right in the United States for citizens who haven't done anything to then uh, 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 disqualify one, a right to vote, right? Unless you're a convict or whatever, right? There's different ways in which we can... Um, you know, we violate the law and therefore the law no longer guarantees that right. Um, but, you know, we do have to be very careful. If, if anyone ever argues about human rights and you're just like, wow, this person is off base, always judge that right by who is responsible for guaranteeing it. Right? So, so like I said, like every right means that someone is responsible for giving that person what is owed them, right? This is the idea of justice. And so if somebody says, you know, well, I, I have a right to X, Y, or Z, and you're like, okay, who's going who's gonna to guarantee that? Right? This is going on right now with people who are just like, you know, in the, uh, because of slavery, you know, reparations are a right for, and I'm just like, and who, like you can claim it's a right, but you're also going to have to explain who's, who's the one who, by justice, owes you <laughs> what you're claiming. And they can never, they can never say that. They're just like, well, we're gonna have to invent this. And it's like, because you're inventing a right. <laughs> you're inventing a right to something that is not actually a human or civil right. And if it is a civil right, then you'll be able to have a law passed to do that, right? Um, because civil rights are, uh, civic rights and civil rights are defined by human institution and law. Uh, fourth principle, uh, prefer preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable. It means that a community should always be um, opting to do those things in order to take care of the most needy and poor members of its community, right? Um, and so uh, we see this a lot, especially, I know not everybody is from Kernersville. Some people are from Winston-Salem and things like that. But here in Kernersville, I know that, um, you know, we don't have great resources, but there are the resources of the Shepherd Center for our elderly and the crisis control for people who are in need and might, might have fallen on difficult times. The Bethany Cafe that is being hosted by churches, including Holy Cross in the area for people who might just need some social time. Like a lot of times, it's not that people need the food, it's because they would otherwise just kind of be isolated um, and they desire that community and they desire that interaction, that human interaction. So the preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable. Also, uh, something the church has always emphasized, but especially, um, especially more so since uh, the rise of uh, the rise of communism. There's an echo like right here. I'm gonna step this way. Um, 
but the dignity of uh, work and the dignity of the worker, right? So that someone receives a fair wage for their work and that uh, work in itself has dignity because we use created uh, means in order to better creation itself and our lives. Uh, it also means that no one can be required to do uh, work that is contrary to Christian morality or contrary to the dignity of human life, right? Um, lastly is solidarity, or not lastly, uh, uh, six of the seven is solidarity, right? The idea that, as St. Paul puts it, if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. The idea that when, when somebody is suffering, like we are our brother's keeper, Right? We are a brother's keeper, and so I can't just turn my back. Solidarity means that we don't just turn our back when somebody is in need. Um, this is especially, again, within the whole uh, Catholic social teaching. It, it does not mean that we're able to solve all the poverty and neediness in the world. Our Lord actually said, the poor will always be with you. Right? The reason that God permits poverty, neediness, and vulnerability in our life is so that we are humbled, so that we are given an opportunity to share our resources and to uh, and to raise up and and uh, raise up our brothers and sisters who are in need, right? And so it's a it's a reminder um, uh, not only because of um, uh, because of situational poverty when someone finds themselves in a situation in which they they are needy, but also the poor will always be with you because there are those who willingly profess a vow of poverty in their life in order to show through their life our religious brothers and sisters, right, who take the vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, are prefigure what we will all be in heaven. Completely poor, no material things, right, completely uh, chaste and, uh, and, and completely obedient to God's will, right? So it's, uh, so it's a prefigurement of, uh, of, of the heavenly realm. That's also why they dress differently and why priests have to wear, why, why, why priests wear different clothes is because it's a sign of Christ's presence and a sign of the kingdom of God in the midst of the world. Um, I say that because our Lord is going to come back in a robe to judge heaven and earth, right? I was talking at a, I was talking at a uh, summer camp for, for young ladies. I was a chaplain a number of years ago for, uh, for a uh, summer camp. It was a group called Fidelis, and, and we were talking about you know, modesty and things like that. And it was a panel discussion. So they had a couple of moms. We had a religious sister. We had a priest. And, um, and somebody says, Father, how do you base, you know, when I, when I talked about, you know, how women should be dressed, the church is always, is always very clear that, you know, for women, it's a Mary-like dress. And for men, it's, 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 it's um, in keeping with the, with the modesty of St. Joseph when it talks about, when it talks about uh, modesty and dress. Somebody was like, Father, how can you back this up? And I was like, well, our Lord is going to be coming back in a, like, ankle-length tunic. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> lastly, um, lastly is a care for creation. Before, um, before anybody gets too uh, worked up about this, care for creation is not in Christian environmentalism. It's nothing like that. It just means that within our uh, conversation about how we live our lives and how we use creation, that we are not abusing creation or wasting it in some uh, grave way. Um, and so, um, you know, I know that politically there's a whole thing about, you know, care for creation right now, but... Um, anyways, what brings all this together? What brings all this together is an eighth principle 
that the church doesn't delineate, but is clearly evident throughout um, every work that I've ever read on Catholic social teaching, which is a big word called subsidiarity, right? Subsidiarity means that everything that can be done to care for each other at the lowest level should be done at the lowest level, right? And so if a family is having issues, it should be, you know, we should try and solve that at the family level, right? Not to, not to necessarily bring in, you know, agencies and groups and, you know, things to help. If something's happening at a community level, it should be solved at that local community level, right? This is the idea that what can be done in these areas should be done at the most local level possible in order to, um, uh, in order to build that, that firm foundation for any community, right? So as we look at the world around us, like we should always be judging situations and in, in the affairs of the world with these concepts in mind, right? Is there an affront to human dignity? Is there an affront to family life? Is it like, where is it that, that, that these things, that, that these principles are not being respected? Um, war is inevitable. Right? We see that throughout, throughout history. Like War is inevitable because communities come together, nations come together, and they desire to express and to expand their own ideas their own, um, and their own borders and things like that. Like, war is inevitable. Unfortunately, what we're dealing with these days is that what the church calls just war theory is out of date. The church, quote-unquote, like there's been no true update to just war theory since St. Augustine. St. Thomas Aquinas, a thousand years after St. Augustine, just repeats St. Augustine. Um, and, and, and the idea is, is that the just war theory, the only way, if you follow the church teaching on just war, the only way that you could have just war is like a civil war where you have, you know, this, this line of soldiers coming this way, this line of soldiers, they stop, they shoot, right? They reload, the other group shoots back, right? We used to do that in, uh, in paintball. We would play the Civil War game where everybody lines up here and everybody lines up there and you shoot and whoever gets shot is like, I'm out, right? And then you take two big steps forward and then the next line shoot. <laughs> that's, that's really the only way that, that, that a just war could be carried out according to the church's teaching. And so we're actually at a point in our, uh, in, in our, in our history in which I think that the next biggest thing that we'll probably see in the next 50 years is probably theologians trying to figure out what just war means in the modern age. Um, just war uh, in, the church's, in the church's definition is always a defensive war, right? It's always in your own, in your own boundaries, in your own national boundaries, defending someone who is invaded. Um, it's something that uh, where all civilian casualties are, you know, are are uh, there, there's no sense that, that, that civilians could be harmed in a war, right? We're not dealing with wars that that's possible anymore. Um, we see this right now when it comes to uh, Israel and Gaza, right? In the sense that, you know, they're using human, you know, human people in order to, to shield themselves from, uh, uh, from the Israeli Defense Force. Um, and so it's, it's one of those situations. I mean, I think we you know, let's, and, and I'm not going to get into this as a, as a big, as a big discussion topic, but let's go back because it's easier to, it's easier to judge things historically, right? We go back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? From a political standpoint, you could make an argument that that was justified, right? That, 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 that uh, you know, the utter devastation because Japan would not have stopped in its assaults outside of its own borders, um, unless they basically just said, hey, if you keep this up, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be taken out. 
from the moral perspective, no Catholic could ever morally argue that that was a just that, that was a just act in war, right? I mean, because you're basically just obliterating civilians' innocence, right? Um, and making and making places you know inhabitable for decades. Um, but from a political standpoint, if you argue about American interests and global interests, you could kind of say, okay, well, if we take the moral aspect out, which we never want to do, if we take the moral aspect out, like. We can see why, you know, politically speaking, it was they felt like it was the only, or they 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 concluded that it was the only way in order to get Japan to stand down. Um, but then we go back to it, and it's just like, all right, well, that was a great thought ex experiment, but morally, it was atrocious. <laughs> morally, it just shouldn't have happened. Um, and yet, you know, that's it's kind of it's kind of where we are um, where we are these days. So two things to keep in mind after uh, church social teaching is two virtues that I think are absolutely necessary, but very infrequently practiced in today's age. The first one is detachment, and the second one is a willingness to suffer. I'll start with the second one, actually. I thought about I'd start with detachment, but a willingness to suffer, right? Everybody remembers 2020, right? Yeah. And people would say, Father, there's, there's this spirit of fear in the world. There's this fear, there's this fear that we're going to get sick, or there's this fear of death, or there's this fear that, you know, that, 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 that a virus will spread. And after a while, I thought to myself, I don't think it's really fear. I think it's deeper than that. I think that people are unwilling in the modern age to deal with suffering, right? We've made our lives, we've tried to make our lives so comfortable and so easy that when the, 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 the least thought of having to deal with suffering approaches, what do we do? Right? We look for a way out. We look for modern medicine so we don't physically have to suffer. We look for uh, a new job so we don't have to suffer our career. We look for, right, there's all of these options that we have and very, very few will actually stop and say, you know what? This is a cross that the Lord has placed in my life and I need to carry it. This is a cross that the Lord has placed in my life and I need to carry it. Because we just start freaking out. Okay, what do I do to avoid this? What do I do to avoid this? What do I do to avoid this? And so we have to be willing in a certain measure to suffer. Um, because, as our Lord has said, right, you have to take up your cross in order to come after him. Um, and so, uh, and so of, of recognizing, um, I'm not saying that we should look for suffering, right? I, I always laughed with um, Fulton Sheen. I don't know how many people have ever heard his retreats and things like that. But, you know, Fulton Sheen he said one time, he said one time in a retreat, I was listening to it on a, on a cassette. Um, I was listening to it on a cassette years ago in my car going up to, uh, to seminary. It was like a six or seven hour retreat that he gave. And he was like, never pray for suffering. He was like, I prayed for suffering one time and it was unbearable. Right? So, right. How much is this archbishop really going to suffer in his life? So this is the example that he gave. And, and I had to pull off the, the highway because I was laughing so much. He was like, so I prayed for suffering. And wouldn't you know it? The Lord gave it to me. I was waiting for my train to go home one night and the train never came. So I had to get a hotel room in New York City. I'm like, wow, this is suffering for, you know, <laughs> but I was laughing so much because this was the example that he used preaching to a bunch of seminarians about, about taking up the cross. And I'm like, wow, that was, that's rough. Like life is hard. Life is hard when you're an archbishop in New York City. Um, but then also detachment. So 
detachment is not a stoic cutting off ourselves from the from the world. It's not an unfeeling or a or a or a lack of compassion. But detachment is necessary, and it used to be defined. And I know Thomas Akempis in the Imitation of Christ defines uh, detachment as contempt for the world. Contempt for the world. So the idea here is that we always have to treat of the world as a foreign land because it's not our homeland, right? Heaven is what we were created for. We were created for, for heaven insofar as we can use the things of this earth for delight and for joy and to enjoy the things of this earth. We should do it in the moderation that it doesn't take us away from Christ. But everything else, we should have a healthy contempt for the world. Like it's okay to be like, man, politics is terrible, right? Because it is, because politics is a human endeavor, right? Where people are expressing their, and so we should at a certain time while participating in it, keep a detachment and a contempt for it to say that, yes, I am morally obligated to participate in society, but at the same time, I should not become about society. I should not become about the world. I should be about Christ and then go into the world in order to, uh, in order to live, but not to live of the world. And so in a certain way, this contempt of the world allows this healthy detachment by which we're not caught up um, by the world. Now, here's a great measure of, um, of detachment, how detached you are. Um, who reads, who, who, who catches up on the news every single day? Whether it be, whether it be, um, whether it be just turning on the morning show or whether it be just opening up your favorite, um, your favorite app to just see what's going on in the world today you're not detached. If you check the news every day to see what's going on, you're not detached. That's the simplest. I, I, remember, I remember in seminary a priest saying that when he was talking about simplicity of life, and he's like, who checked out Drudge Report today, or CNN, or Fox News? And like everybody's like, yeah, I did. And, um, and he was like, okay, well, you're not detached to the world. <laughs> right? One thing that I try and do ever, ever since I heard that is I try and stay 48 to 72 hours behind the news cycle. Right? I mean, that's a contempt for the world. Nothing going on in the world that I'm going to read about through the internet or through the newspaper is going to affect me today. I've got masses. I've got coffee and catechesis. I've got a 40-day blessing. I've got enough on my calendar today that it doesn't matter what develops in Israel. It doesn't matter what happens in Ukraine. It doesn't matter what happens in Ecuador. It doesn't matter what happens with the cartel wars in Mexico. Right? I might... Whether I find out about some terrible atrocity today or in three days isn't going to change what I'm responsible for today. And so a, a healthy detachment is just kind of just kind of roll your eyes and be like, here we go again. There's something terrible going on in the world. But the only thing that I can prevent is something terrible going on at Holy Cross <laughs> in my community. <laughs> um, and, so, and so that contempt for the world, a detachment, a virtue that we need to practice um, in order to... Um, uh, in order to uh, to be more faithful and not to be shaken by what goes on, uh, what what goes on around us. All right, so uh, let's play a little guessing game. Uh, Carolyn, you're not allowed to answer this because you might know. Um, right now, <laughs> her Pentagon connection. Um, right now, uh, in the world, um, how many armed conflicts is the United States Defense Department monitoring? Is armed conflicts in the world? Okay, I got two. I got about 20. Somebody is non-committal. <laughs> about 20. 
Just the ones in the United States, it's just a guess about the United States Defense Department as of yesterday, because it's probably changed today. But I looked it up. How many, how many armed conflicts that they're monitoring as serious armed conflicts in the world? So the, we've got about 20. Kathy's just like, I don't know. As of yesterday that they have listed, meaning that, they, that there's probably some that they're monitoring that they don't want us to know about, 27. 27. What do you think those include? Well, give us the obvious ones. Israel and Gaza. Syria. Actually, you know, um, no, no, Iraq was on the list. You're right, because they're going through the, um, they're going through the, religious, the religious persecution right now. Yemen. Ye Yemen was on there, yep. Ukraine, okay, we didn't say that. Actually, interestingly enough, India wasn't on there. I was surprised, because they are having the security border crisis right now with Iraq. Um, <laughs> North Korea is not on the list. No. Is there an armed conflict going on in North Korea right now? They're always bothering South Korea. <laughs> the big bully in North Korea is always going to bother South Korea. <laughs> my brother actually served, uh, uh, my brother served in the demilitarized zone over there. He said it was the eeriest thing ever. He was like, it's so, he said it was so weird. Um, obviously, there's also what's going on in Honduras right now with the civil, with the civil unrest in Honduras. Uh, one of the, oh, another armed conflict, actually it's two armed conflicts in one that they've been monitoring since 2005 are the Mexican cartels, the drug wars going on in Mexico. They're considering that a serious armed conflict because it's the cartels against the federales, right? And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that are dying every month um, because of the brutality of the cartels, right? So there's a lot going on in the world. Um, Venezuela, right? We've had, we've had, uh, I've, I've met three families from Venezuela in the last year that are here because of asylum because they've protested the government and then they get all the bones of their body broken um, by the police. Um, Congo and Uganda, right? Argentina, they're having a security crisis. What's that? I don't think so. I don't remember. Where's that? Oh, yeah. There's a lot going on in Africa right now. Right now, yeah, right now in Nigeria right, and in the Congo, right? I mean, priests, priests and seminarians are being, like, just picked off left and right. The Boko Haram stuff going on. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the world is terrible. Like, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but there's nothing, again, there's, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do today in order to solve these, these, these crises. But again, when we look at these, we should always, you know, we should never look for winners and losers. I say the same thing when it comes to Israel and Gaza, right? I say, okay, well, let's just take it on the principle of, you know, who is trying to respect human life, right? How are, what, what's the medium by which we, we, we go about, um, uh, we go about, you know, ending, you know, ending conflicts. Do the, does it, does it relate to, and is there a respect for the, for the principles of Catholic uh, social teaching? Um, oh man, we are running out of time, aren't we? Okay. We're going to have to move on. All right. So a couple of things uh, that are going on inside the church that I wanted to give a little bit of clarity to. Um, right now, and um, as you all know, I'm, I, I, I try my best to be a faithful son of the church. Um, and I would never, you know, I would never say anything that, uh, that would, that would, um, 
make it seem like, like, like I'm not a faithful subject of the Holy Roman Pontiff. However, um, there are some things that are going on in the church today that we do just need to address. Um, for those of you who may be aware, uh, Vos Estes was a document that came out um, about five years ago um, when the sexual scandal um, uh, rocked the church. Um, it was when I was in high school when a lot of it came out. Um, and I remember going to seminary and one of the priests, our first, our first conference, it was, we were like two days. We were like, we got day one to settle in. We got second day in which the vice rector comes in. And he was just like, yeah, I don't know why you guys want to be priests. I was like, well, that was inspiring. Um, but it was because, it was because of what was going on in the church and all these priests being accused of, you know, and bishops being accused of cover up. What happened was that in, was after that, the, the, uh, bishops of the United States met, and along with um, uh, the, um, along with instructions from the Vatican, they set up what was called the Charter for the Protection of uh, uh, for the Protection of Vulnerable uh, Vulnerable People and um, and Minors, right? Which is shortly called because it was decided upon in a meeting in Dallas, the Dallas Charter. The Dallas Charter automatically had a few different uh, holes in it that a lot of priests noticed, which was there was no oversight for bishops, right? It was only, it only like, uh, it only like kind of um, affected priests, right? And so if a bishop was ever accused of something, there was no recourse in that. So a lot of people said, okay, well, what happens if a, a bishop is guilty of something? Um, and that really was put on the back burner until Cardinal McCarrick, right? Cardinal McCarrick. Um, who was credibly accused right now, the last case last week, the last case against him then dismissed because he's so old. They've, they've said in every single um, court that he's not competent in order to stand trial. But this, when this Cardinal McCarrick stuff came out, they're just like, everyone was just like, we've been saying this the whole time. So the Vatican put out a document called Vos Estes. Um, and in that, it actually placed a... Um, uh, it placed a process, or put a process in place in case there was an accusation against the bishop, what happens in that situation, and how that investigation happens, and then what the punishments are if it's considered that there's a credible allegation that he covered something up, or he himself did something um, against, uh, uh, against the moral law. Um, so so here's, here's what's going on right now, and it's frustrating. Um, and a lot of people have asked me about this. So there's four bishops. The, the most recent one was Strickland in Texas, um, who, you know, they, they, they may be outspoken or they might not, but the Pope is going around deposing bishops. Mm, he can't do that. Um, and, and that's what's confusing about this. So a bishop, can, a bishop has a divine right to his diocese. So a priest has a, a pastor has a divine right to his parish, right? When the bishop came, for anyone who is here, when the bishop came and installed me as pastor, Right, what that means is I have a divine right to my parish, and he cannot remove me unless he can prove some canonical reason or some irresponsibility. So if I stopped saying Mass on Sundays, okay, that's a serious reason to remove a pastor because you'd be like, here's your responsibilities. I told you, you had to do these things. You're not doing it. You're out of here. But he has to bring a case, a canonical case. And I have to get a canon lawyer, and he has to get a, he is a canon lawyer. He'd have to get a canon lawyer. Like the only way that I can be removed from my parish is if he can prove that there's something that I did uh, contrary to the ministry that he has entrusted me with. 
The only way, uh, the only way that, that, that I go out of here is I have to physically, in writing, resign my parish. That's what happens when priests are moved. People think, oh, you know, this priest was moved to here, and this priest was moved here, and this priest was... Behind the scenes, the bishop has to convince me to physically resign my parish, to leave the office of pastor empty, and then he can fill that with another priest. So that's what happens when priests move. It's not that the bishop calls and be like, all right, Padre, uh, you're done at Holy Cross. You're going to go over to this parish in Charlotte. No, he has to convince me that it's for my benefit and the benefit of the faithful that I resign the parish in order to accept another assignment. Right? This is the same thing with bishops. Right? The Pope cannot depose bishops. However, when he does, there is no recourse because he's the supreme authority of the church. Right? This is what happens when somebody says, um, well, this happened recently. There was a priest who was removed for calling the Holy Father a heretic. And I was like, well, that was bold. Why, why, why can that, like, you can't call the Pope a heretic. It's, it's impossible because what you need is you need a canonical, not a canonical suspension. You need a canonical process in which if I call, if I said that my, that my bishop was heretical, I would have to bring that charge against him in a clerical court. It would probably go to Rome. And then the, 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 the highest court in Rome would have to decide whether he's guilty of heresy or not. What's the issue if you do that with a pope? There is no higher authority. The only person who can declare a pope a heretic is the next pope. Honestly, it's happened in the church. What? Which can exist when the pope is in office. No, but what I mean is that, let's say that, let's say that, um, Pope John the Second. Let's say that Pope John the Second dies. Benedict fills in, and he goes back, and he says, "By the way, these are the charges of heresy." So it's after after, after the fact. Dead, yeah, right. or after they've resigned the office, right? Um, so, so this is the the odd thing, right? So, so there's been two bishops in Argentina. There's been a bishop in Peru, and there's been a bishop in Texas, Bishop Strickland, right? That have all been deposed. Nobody knows what that means. Right? And so people are just like, what does this mean, Father? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right? Because technically you can't just remove a bishop. You have to bring a charge against him, and the penalty has to be that they have to, that they're not allowed to hold public office. And so these, 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 these bishops, especially the one in Peru, he was like, I called the Vatican after I got this letter saying that I'm no longer the bishop, and no one's calling me back. Because <laughs> nobody in the Vatican knows what this means either. Right, and so I'm I'm not saying anything against the guy. I'm just saying that we're in this weird situation in which there's these the bishop in Peru had his own seminary, and the bishops, the other bishops in Peru, was just like let's all let's all use this one seminary together. And he's like, I'd rather just use my seminary. And he gets a letter in the mail that says you're acting against the collegiality of your bishops, and you're no longer the bishop there. And he was like, you can't do that. And they're like, well, we did it. He's like, but you can. They're like, but the Pope did it. It's like, but the Pope can't do it. They're like, but he did. <laughs> right? So there is no process right now in which, in, in, in which we can understand this. So we're just going to have to let it kind of shake out um, and hold firm and hold fast to the faith. Right? So this vos estes thing is being, was, was, was a process given for the removal of bishops who have been credibly accused of either covering up clerical sexual abuse or they're um, a pederast themselves. Um, but it's being applied in other situations in which the Pope is just removing bishops that seem to be acting against him. Yeah? Are there any charges that we know of against uh, Bishop 
Uh, it was it basically said that because of his uh, because of his um, ongoing um, ongoing outspokenness that uh, that he was no longer acting in a manner that was collegial. Like he wasn't playing he wasn't playing by the same rules, right? No. The College of Car the College of Cardinals, interestingly enough, is a is a is an organizational body to help one to elect a new pope, and two to be advisors to the pope in these matters. Um, but the College of Cardinals, in and of themselves, don't have don't have a power of jurisdiction except where they are bishops if they're bishops. Um, yeah, and and again, it's interesting because this is a you know this is a thing that. This is a thing that goes, that happens all the time, um, or, or is discussed all the time. When I was in seminary and I did a canon law class, we had Father Aranya, who uh, was over in Rome. We, we had so many nicknames for him. Um, <laughs> seminarians are not immune to calling professors by nicknames uh, <laughs> and not liking some of them. But he was, he was very much like, he was one of those guys who was like, if you have a priest who quotes canon law without reading it from the book in Latin, they're not worth their weight in salt. So, so we got used to like having the book in front of us. We were even allowed to have the code of canon law in our exam, which was like yes. Um, but we had to know how to use it because he would know. Like, but um, one thing that cannot be dispensed from is process law, right? So, uh, those who are familiar with it, Traditionis Custodis came out this past year. Traditionis Custodis, the tradi the the custodians of tradition. Um, limited severely the ability for priests to offer the Latin Mass in parishes. Um, I won't get into the details of it, but one thing that, that people will say is that, you know, it, it came out and it said, you know, as of noon today, this goes into effect. Okay. Much like American law, church law is the same way, where it requires an embargoed text to be sent for universal law to every bishop, for a period of a week so that they can begin to kind of digest it. And it requires a vacatio legis, which vacates former law. And it requires a time in which it's published and then goes into effect. It must be at least 20 days. Okay. So Traditionis Custodis comes out and it says, effective immediately, these are the new norms. It doesn't vacate the, the previous law. And it does not give a publication date, and no embargo is sent out to the bishops, which makes it in and of itself null and void. But everyone said, but the Pope issued it, and since he's the, he's the highest authority, we have, to, we, we, we have to recognize it as a legitimate law. Okay. Technically, because process law cannot be, um, cannot be circumvented in the church, he should have immediately change the process law, which he has the power to do. He can change the book of processes in the Code of Canon Law and then publish the article. So I, I mean, so per, I mean, practically I look at it and I'm like, legally speaking, this is null and void, but everyone is following it. So therefore, <laughs> right, what, it's like, okay, interesting, right? Very interesting. Um, Again, like I said, I mean, we're we're in this situation in which it's just like, well, let's just see where the you know, let's just see where the crumbles fall. Um, yes, yes. Why is 
Um, it's seen as, uh, the, the question was, why is there a push to limit the Latin mass or to not have the Latin mass offered? Um, I, I think right now it's just a matter of those who are in charge see it as divisive. They just see it as, you know, in, in, in church, which I have not experienced in the parishes where I've, where I've been that offer it, where they, where they basically say, well, it makes for two communities in one parish. Um, the parishes that I've had, I mean, I, I remember the first parish that I was at, I walked in and they were just like, by the way, we have the Latin Mass here. I'm just like, okay. Um, and it was four o'clock on a Sunday and people just treated it like any other Mass. If families weren't available in the morning, they go to the four o'clock. The Latin Mass families that normally went to the four o'clock, if they had something going on, they go to an earlier Mass. People just move back and forth and it, it wasn't two communities, but it's kind of seen as divisive. Um, in 2000 and... Yes. Yes. For the record, she said that. I did not. She said that. I did not. You s don't say the quiet part out loud. Yes. Indeed. In this day and age, most of the, you know, who speaks Latin as a normal course of events? God does. It's, 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 in, in, after the Second Vatican Council, after the Second Vatican Council, was a, it, the bishop was joking one time at dinner. He said, he said, after the Second Vatican Council, God had to create the Tenth Choir of Angels, the translating choir, to translate all of our prayers into Latin so God can understand. Uh, I will say this. I will say this. So the church has traditionally used Latin, Hebrew, and Greek in its worship. These are three sacred languages. English is not a sacred language. Spanish is not a sacred language. French is not a sacred language. The church has used Latin as a sacred language in order to worship God with an instrument that is sacred. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek are sacred languages because those were the languages that were affixed to the cross, which is the instrument of our salvation. So it's not a question of understanding. It's a question of using sacred things to worship God. And so right, English is not a sacred instrument to worship God. That's what I was meaning I mean, as a thought experience, possibly. I've never experienced that. I'm just saying that... The, I mean, I just, I've concept. never experienced that. Just to add something to the soft of what you said, um, I, I can say that it's years old. We had
is. Well, we'll do it here just to be fair. So yeah so I also think that it's something that's uh, that, that makes that makes the liturgy universal so uh, today the from the from the hymnal at the eight o'clock mass, I noticed that after communion, we did the uh, Ader Amos in Eternum, um, which a lot of people, I think it might be the first time that we've done it at the parish, which people might not recognize right away is, let us therefore adore forever the, the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. Um, at first, if somebody's not familiar with it and they hear it over and over again, they might learn it. They might not be able to translate it directly, but they are able to say, well, Ader Amos sounds like we should adore. Santissimum Sacramentum sounds like Most Holy Sacrament, right? They, they have the idea of, of that it is something that's adoration. And then if you make a pilgrimage to Rome, every Sunday they sing at the Vatican. So you'll be there going like, I don't understand Italian. Then they'll be like, adoremus. And you'll be like, in eternum, right? So it's something that also unites us together. Um, and the fact that if somebody goes to, uh, if somebody who speaks English goes to the Spanish Mass, they might be lost until they hear Sanctus, Sanctus, and there's like, oh, we sing this at the English Mass, and it and it unifies the communities through a common through a common uh, tongue. Um, okay, we got just a few minutes. I was going to jump into uh, Fiducia Supplicans, right? The the document that is rocking the world right now. Um, Fiducia Supplicans. It's not what the news tells you, right? Again, if you're going to the news to figure out what the church is teaching, you will always be led astray. Fiducia Supplicans came out a few weeks ago. I want to give a little bit of a background. So background, there was German Bishops Conference. They submitted a dubia to the uh, congregation. I'm sorry, the dicastery is what we're calling it now, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And they asked in February 22nd, 2021, they said, does the church have the power to give the blessing of unions of persons of the same sex? Their response was one word, negative. I love it when the church is succinct. They just wrote back negative. Uh, two cardinals, along with three archbishops, then in September of 2023, sent dubia. Uh, there were like six questions they asked of uh, the, the, the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith. While the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith, this is a year after the first dubia came out, um, and the church said the church has no power to bless uh, unions of people of the same sex. Uh, the Belgium Bishops Conference in September of 2023 published a ritual by which they would celebrate the marriages of gay people. It was in the, the direct defiance of the Vatican because they asked if they could do it. The Vatican said no, they did it anyways. That was September of 2023. At the same time, five days after the Belgian Bishops Conference published this ritual to bless the unions of same-sex couples, the Pope Francis himself sent a response September 25th, 2023. He said, same-sex unions cannot be blessed. The church does not have the power to do this, nor can anyone do anything that would make them similar to the concept of marriage. While pastoral prudence may allow the blessing of two individuals who are in a same-sex union, it should not become the norm. Right? So this was two years in the making. This was bishops... <laughs> defying it because they had a, uh, an agenda. And finally, Fiducia Supplicans is released. And what does it tell us? Fiducia Supplicans is an instruction that's offered what's called 
It's a declaration in forma specifica. In forma specifica means that it's not just a declaration that the congregation has put out or the dicastery has put out, but it means that it bears the signature of the Holy Father himself, which means it's been given to him, he has approved it, and he is the one issuing it. So when it comes to the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, a, a declaration in forma specifica is the highest magisterial authority that that congregation has. Anything higher is coming directly from the Pope or from an ecumenical council. Right? So a declaration is forma specifica. Um, now, this document covers two general areas. First of all is the pastoral meaning of blessings. And secondly, uh, it, it talks about those who are in irregular unions. It does not in any specific way talk about same-sex couples. An irregular situation is any way of life that is in contradiction to the discipline in the life of the church. So this also talks about if a couple comes and the husband is divorced and remarried, right? They're not in a sacramental union. They're in an irregular situation. And so it, it affects them as well. What happens if a couple comes up and you're just like, well, you know, you're living with this woman and it's not your wife because you were divorced, but you never got an annulment, right? But also those who are in, um, who are um, same-sex, uh, same-sex couples. Now, the meaning of blessings is the novelty here, which is going to take a little while for theologians and scholars and such to kind of work through. Up to this point, the church spoke of imprecatory and deprecatory blessings. Imprecatory blessings are those blessings which we're asking God to look favorably on something. Deprecatory blessings are those in which we're commanding God to fill a person or an object with his, with his grace, right? So a deprecatory blessing is like um, me blessing a scapular or the blessing at the end of Mass, uh, where it's may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, an imprecatory blessing is when, is when I ask, like, may Almighty God you know, look favorably on you in your life, da 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 da, da. Um, But the church began, well, well, with the declaration, it made a different distinction. It made a distinction between liturgical blessing and pastoral blessings. It says in no way can, can, can the church give liturgical blessings to people who are living in a, a way of life that is contrary to the moral teaching of the church and the discipline uh, of the church. A pastoral blessing can be given, right, spontaneously when requested. And I looked at that and I was like, well, that makes sense. Like, that's what we're already doing, right? Somebody comes up to me and they're just like, hey, Father, it's my birthday. Can you give me a blessing? Did you have an abortion yesterday? No, I'm not going to ask that, right? Are you divorced and remarried? I don't ask that. I just say, oh, yeah, it's your birthday, you know. May Almighty God, you know, continue to bless you and give you life, and you know, may may you be strengthened to continue to live, you know, faithful to Him. Right? I mean, that's a pastoral, spontaneous blessing. A family comes up to me and um, and says, "Hey, Father, you know, we're going to be traveling. Uh, we're going to be traveling for the holidays. You know, can you give us a blessing? Are your kids a product of in vitro fertilization? No, you don't ask that question, right? You say, "Of course, I'll give you a blessing." The thing with the same-sex couples, though, is that when they come up, you know. It, it gives some some opportunities, like if they're if 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 they've gone to a retreat together, or if they're visiting a shrine, or something like that. And there's a moment of conversion, 
right? And so this would be, and in, in, in the church later clarified, the doctrine, the dicastery for the doctrine of faith later clarified that no, if, if two people come up to you, you have to make sure that it's not in a public setting where it would seem like you're, you're, you're blessing a union or approving of the way that they're living their life. And you don't make one sign of the cross over both of them. You make an individual sign of the cross. So, so you're not giving that, that idea that you're, that you're uh, blessing the couple, but you're blessing the individuals. And the blessing must contain language that talks about bringing their life in accord with the gospel. Right? So I... I've met same-sex couples before that are struggling to live chastely, right, and to, and to model their lives according to the moral life of the church. And w before they leave my office, guess what I do? I bless them. And with that language, the church has just said, in these situations, you have to be able to say, like, you're not blessing their union. You're blessing their effort to, to, to bring their lives in accord with the gospel, to live chastely and to live rightly in, in terms of the moral, uh, the moral law. Um, and so, again, you know, when we have to read the text, we have to look to see what the church is asking for. I think the biggest novelty here is this distinction between liturgical and pastoral blessings. This is kind of new. The church has never used language like this before, so we'll see kind of where the, you know, where everything falls. Um, so, irregular situations, it doesn't change what priests have already done which is a pray that individuals uh, will come into full accord with the moral teaching and discipline of the church, right? So hopefully if you've had your shackles up about fiducia supplicans, that helps kind of kind of calm everything down, right? The church is not moving anywhere close to um, uh, uh, denying what she's always taught about marriage and the complementarity of the sexes. Um, so remember your Catholic social teaching, practice detachment, be willing to suffer, uh, and stop watching the news. <laughs> right? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. It was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.